I do know some Megans, actually. Friends, Dobermans, cockapoos, lend me your ears. And listen to the Uncut Gems podcast, a weekly show where we talk about movies that no one else wants to talk about. Us included sometimes. However, here we are, episode 144, and my name's Randy. And my name's Jakob. All right, a big hello to everyone listening. Thank you, by the way, for supporting us uh, by listening to us. Last week, we were here talking about the Exorcist prequels. God love us. The week prior, we talked about the Exorcist sequels. God uh-huh. love us. Uh, so it's our demonic Tober month, and all of this evil, one way or the other, came from William Peter Blatty. So today, uh, we'll talk about Blatty's spiritual sequel to The Exorcist. More on that in a moment. Quick announcements. Uh, so today, we'll conclude our William Peter Blatty's demonic Tober deliberations um but i would like to direct everyone to our patreon page where you can listen to a very special discussion on the granddaddy of blatty's influence the granddaddy arguably of modern horror the exorcist this is a free unlocked episode uh and it's free and unlocked for a number of reasons william Friedkin is a very special voice to us very special creator on this show we you know like the man's work a great deal. So it's our honoring his cinematic legacy. Uh, Friedman probably, as most folks know, passed away this summer. Uh, so there's that. Also, this is the 50th anniversary this year. 19, uh, sorry, this is the 50th anniversary of The Exorcist. It was released in 1973. So there's that. Um, and of course, the only possible tie-in episode we could launch on our Patreon for Demonictober is The Exorcist. So go check out that episode, www.patreon.com slash uncutgemspod. If you like what you're, if you like what you hear there, um, you're more than welcome to sign up for more Patreon episodes, just three bucks a month or 450 Canadian. You can get access to, I want to say around 70 episodes that are there now. Just listen to us talking smack about films mostly about well-known classic films or career marathon projects, such as the full David Lynch marathon, which is there, and almost complete John Cassavetes marathon that we've been working on this year. And we've also got an impressive roster of Steven Soderbergh films. So his better known works are on our Patreon. Um, and those last two, those are those are 2023 projects that are starting to wind down. You can check out our new Cassavetes episode in a couple of weeks. We'll be launching our episode where we talked about Gloria. Last month, we talked about opening night. Great conversation. Uh, so is Gloria. We have had that chat already. Two great chats. Our Soderbergh shallow cut on Patreon this month was Logan Lucky. And in, I think, a week's time, maybe two weeks' time, uh, Free Flying Bird is going to land. High Flying Bird? Is it Free Flying Bird? No, free High bird. Flying Bird. <laughs> you can't make it. Uh, it's High Flying Bird, right? High Flying Bird. Thank you. think so. I think it is. Uh, the crap one writes down when they're tired. Yeah. So High Flying Bird, it will sort of reach its perch in a couple weeks' time uh, mm-hmm. on our Patreon. So 
go listen to that. If you're not interested, no worries. But if you'd like to support us with a one-time donation, such gestures are appreciated. You can go to ko-fi.com slash uncutgemspod. That's K-O-F-I.com. Or, you know, you can leave us a review or you can drop us a line on our socials or you can say hi or share your thoughts via an email or you can tell a friend about us. You know, go tell one person. Go tell a person that you know likes movies to listen in on a, a chat of ours. That's appreciated. And you know what? If you're not up for any of that, no worries. Just be positive and helpful to someone. Pay it forward. There's a lot of negativity and anger and evil in the world out there. So just be kind and patient for someone who needs it. Okay. Speaking of evil and patience, (laughs) both spellings. Let's just uh, do this. Rip off the plaster. Let's do this. (laughs) William Peter Blatty wrote and directed the film on today's roster, the 1980 film, The Ninth Configuration. I think it's a dog. God damn it, not the pants. There you are. Now, do I have to put up with your temperament this early? All right, Reno, all right. Sorry, Colonel. It's hard to keep track of these. Major Grover, let him be. But Colonel, he's been... All right. The men may see me whenever they need to. You heard Whatever you say, sir. Yes, sir. Quit drinking buttermilk daiquiris in the closet, Groper. That man is a lunatic and dangerous. Once, one night, I was walking the grounds. I hear this whispering, see, and I look. And up in the branches of this cypress tree, there's Groper, the crazy bastard, talking in whispers with an owl. With a what? A big black and white owl, they're common. I couldn't testify to what they were saying. They were whispering, understand me? I couldn't hear them clearly. And what I don't know for a fact, I don't say. That's the kind of hairpin I am. Reno. No, sir, the words weren't clear, really, sir. Believe me. But there isn't a cypress tree on the grounds. Doctor, it's easy to dig up a tree. And then anyone with money can fill in the hole. I didn't think of that. No. The Ninth Configuration was directed... Produced and written by William Peter Blatty. It was based on his book, written, I think, in the 60s, maybe 1968 rings a bell. That book was called Twinkle, Twinkle, Killer Kane. Yes. It was rewritten later. So it was, he, it was, it was, oh, this book was like a 1960s book, but he yep. later rewrote it and republished it as the Ninth Configuration. As the Ninth Configuration, and, yes. And he adapted, the, I think, this book. Yes. So, and yeah, we'll get into pieces of that because, yeah, there's a whole history in in here. Um, the film stars Stacey Keach, Scott Wilson, Jason Miller, Ed Flanders, uh, Moses Gunn, Robert Loggia, uh, Richard Lynch is in there, and William Peter Blatty himself is in there in a cameo. And his wife as well. And his wife is also in there as a cameo. And she's not the voice of Satan. No, she's on the <laughs> phone. <laughs> so I'm Calling Stacey Keach. <laughs> So the ninth configuration, and I, yeah, I, I was too tired to write my own synopsis, so I'm going to admit this is from IMDb. It's going to be a Jakob synopsis, no? No, no, it's going to be actually Yeah, no, no, it's an IMDb borrowed synopsis. To figure out whether psychiatry patients are feigning insanity or not, an orthodox psychiatrist, Colonel Kane, arrives at a castle in New England that's been converted into a mental health facility for Vietnam War vets. And while struggling 
with his own inner demons, the metaphysical inquiries of psychotic former astronaut Captain Cutshaw intrigue Colonel Kane, and this triggers nightmares. So that's is what we're in for. Of, is this an official synopsis? Because in the film, it's in the Pacific Northwest, not in New England. Unless Pacific New, New Northwest is also I, New England. I smell bullshit. I I noticed that too. I came across that different places. Be, um, what does it mention in the film? I sort of forget. I think Pacific North, Northwest, I'd say. Because I'm, I'm not f- yeah. for myself, I wrote down, it's just like, are we sure there are castles in America? <laughs> I, I've wondered that as well. And I was looking, I was looking for New England castles. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's a couple two-story ones. But anyway. Especially so, in Pacific Northwest, which was like colonized fairly late into the game. I'm pretty sure like we were like in Europe, we were like way over castles at this point. <laughs> yeah. Any, any castles in Western North America are made of wood. <laughs> castles in... North America. Okay, you, you yep. go on. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll <laughs> so, great. You you can research. You can uh, yeah. See if there's any uh, DIY. Cinderella Castle. That's a proper castle, actually. Okay. All right. So what I'll what I'll add myself. So this is me adding to the IMDb synopsis. Um, this isn't just a plot driven piece. This is meant to be a spiritual successor to The Exorcist. This is part of Blatty's own trilogy of faith and i think he may even have come up with that term himself so this includes the exorcist the ninth configuration and the exorcist three um and very specifically the ninth configuration is in the same universe as the exorcist so if the exorcist verse is a thing these two coexist because the main character here one of the two leads captain cutshaw and that's scott wilson he act. This character appears in The Exorcist. Did you come across this? Did you know this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think this I is no like idea. a second, like a secondary connection, as in, like he made this connection. Oh, totally, like, yeah. oh this could, this could be this guy, you know? Yeah, like exactly. The guy who is this? You're gonna go. You're gonna die up there. You're gonna die up there. I had no idea that that character was an astronaut. I, I didn't get that, but anyway, I think it's in better the, established in the book. Yes, in the book there are conversations. Yeah. I because it's like a whole chapter about the party, so you get to like mingle with these people for like almost like a half hour there of your you life. Go. There you go. Yeah. So anyway, the ninth configuration is in the exorcist verse. The Pazuzu verse. So behind the scenes on on this. In the 1960s, we were just sort of referring to this. Blatty wrote a lot of comedies, but he also wrote the novel Twinkle, Twinkle, Killer Kane in 66. There you go. Um, And then he set out to adapt it at the time. He even sent it to William Friedkin, who was willing to direct because Friedkin even sort of liked it. Uh, Patrick McGowan from The Prisoner, the TV show The Prisoner, he was set to star, but it just it never took off because no studio showed any interest in it. So the project more or less died. Fast forward several years after The Exorcist became a big success, Blatty returned to the story because he always loved the story. He always loved what he captured on the page there. So he rewrote the novel, making a, making it a wee bit more serious, and he delves a little bit further into some theological discussions. We're going to get into that. Um, he made the lead character the astronaut from The Exorcist, and he published this new iteration of Twinkle, Twinkle, Killer Kane as the ninth configuration. Uh, After that, Blatty developed a screenplay around this new text. He took it to Columbia. Columbia 
took it and, and recommended it go into turnaround and because they, they felt it needed a lot of help. So Blatty's like, nope, thank you. So he waltzed it across the street to Universal. Universal said, nope, not interested. He didn't even take it to Warner's because there was bad blood with the profit distribution from The Exorcist. So he didn't even take it to Warner Brothers. And Blatty said to himself, well, we'll do this as an independent project. And he reasoned that it needed a $4 million budget. He put up $2 million himself and he found a co-sponsor, Pepsi. (laughs) So Pepsi put up another $2 million and the two in this business arrangement, Pepsi had a stipulation that the, that X percent of the production had to be shot in Hungary. So all the interiors that we see in this film are shot in Hungary. And Blatty's stipulation was that he had full creative control, including final cut. So further, this is Blatty's directorial debut. Originally, Michael Moriarty was cast as Billy Cutshaw, but was replaced by Scott Wilson. And Nicole Williamson was originally cast as Carol Kane. And we know Nicole Williamson because he was cast last minute in The Exorcist 3 to be the exorcist in the brutal tack on to, you know, that film. And interestingly, Stacy Keach came in to replace Nickel Williamson and Stacy Keach himself was originally cast as father Karist in the exorcist. Mm-hmm. But Friedkin Friedkin just loved Jason Miller so much that I think they paid out Stacy Keach um, so that they, they basically paid him off from his commitment so that Jason Miller could come in. Uh, so again, like this has come up all month, Friedkin had the balls to make a decision and sort of go with his heart and others around other Exorcist films don't. But anyway. And studio listened. And the studio. Like, Fine, Mr. Friedkin. Yeah, Fine. E- exactly. So speaking of Jason Miller, he's in here as well. He's going to be a talking point. Just saying. Uh, <laughs> the man who does Shakespeare <laughs> plays for dogs. That's him. So the film, once it was made, Blatty and PepsiCo, they, they made the, a deal with UFD Distribution Company to distribute the film, but then UFD dropped it. And ironically, it was Warner Brothers who ended up picking it up for distribution purposes. It made back in bo- in the box office $2.5 million on its $4 million budget. Uh, critics seemed to like it. Mark Kermode, the Mr. Exorcist Stan himself, loved it get a load of this he said it's a breathtaking cocktail of philosophy eye-popping visuals jaw-dropping pretentiousness rib-tickling humor and heart-stopping action we're going to come back to that leonard malton also can you, liked can it you go again because yep. I, I, I raised my eyebrow at the uh, heart-stopping action what's before that in the quote it's a breathtaking cocktail of philosophy eye-popping mm-hmm. visuals okay Jaw-dropping pretentiousness. Okay, the one for three. Okay, yep. <laughs> and there's, well, there's, you know, philosophies there, yeah. Oh, sure. so I suppose to a point. Rib-tickling humor and heart-stopping action. Right. You can't say cocktail without saying cock. Right. And <laughs> just quickly, <laughs> were, your, were your ribs tickled? Well, we'll get oh, to no, 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 no. Leonard rib- Malton rib- also <laughs> loved it. <laughs> My ribs remained criminally under-tickled. Way, not even touched, really. Um, This won a Saturn Award for what that's worth. This got some attention from the Golden Globes, where it won Best Screenplay. It was nominated for Best Supporting Actor at the Globes. Letterboxd, sort of the the 
the average review on that site has it as around three and a half stars. Rotten Tomatoes has it as an 81% average. So by all accounts, this was an appreciated film, but at the same time, no one really seems to talk about it. No one seems to remember it, which brings us to our holy work that we're doing this month. Jakob, why aren't people talking about the ninth configuration today? Because it's dog shit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, short and sweet. Look, after a whole month of this jackassery, like I think my patience is wearing thin. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, again, we spent a month talking about Exodus' sequels, which they're all on the bang on 117 minutes each and this one's also an 117 minute movie i think that like, bloody was just like i think this is how you make movies just, <laughs> you have to just i guess this yeah. this two hour slot and you have to fill no. it with something right? screw the 666 117 is the true mark of the devil yeah 666 <laughs> minutes that's like a laugh the ass film <laughs> it's just like a whole day <laughs> it's just 10 hours, 11 hours <laughs> and six minutes. <laughs> um, now, uh, what I'm going to say is, I mean, I have stuff to say about like what what I think this mo- this movie's problem could potentially be, but let's just like keep it vague for now. You know, like keep you in suspense, okay? <sighs> Look, the ninth configuration, the, its biggest, I mean, okay, if I had to explain this to someone who's never seen this, like what this movie is like, it's kind of like, imagine uh, Catch-22 mixed with The Keep mixed with Shutter Island. (laughs) With just a tiny bit of The Accused (laughs) and Deliverance towards the end. (laughs) What a collage. (laughs) <laughs> and maybe the warriors because like there's, there's these bikers at the end i'm just like wow like well how much eyeliner, eyeliner did they use on this guy <laughs> but you know so it's kind of this weird i mean look we're gonna get to it but i feel like this is like blatty's passion project Right, this is a movie that he just kept in his heart. He want like I really want to make this so, so much that he re- took this book and rewrote it, republished it, and then readapted it. You know, but look, this movie wants to say things, tries to say things, and at the end of the day, I think it's it's like it falls on its own sword. I'm gonna keep it vague for now. I, I've I, but the overarching, let's just say, adjective that will. I think reoccur, at least in my estimation, is the P word, pretentious. This movie's pretentious as hell. It tries to have these conversations that are intellectual in nature. It has it tries to kinda I don't know, lure you into some kind of intellectual uh divagations about like n- the nature of e- good and evil for a very long while, very very uh, let's just say pseudo intellectually as in like by sh- by telling you and not showing you and only towards the end if you're if you're brave enough to last i want to say 90 minutes with it 
then it kind of starts taking shape and starts saying, okay, well, starts making sense. But at this point, I'm just too little, too late, ombre. You know, I can, I'm checked out already. I'm mean, I appreciate the effort, but this time I'm, I'm angry already. So you're not winning me back. Like I can't just, I, I can't just go and say like, turn on a dime and say like, actually, this is quite, this is kind of amazing. Like, no, you had me sit through this whole sort of string of crap only for it to start making so some kind of sense uh and towards the end no i you know i refuse to be a victim like to quote annette <laughs> benning from american beauty <laughs> that's why i'm gonna leave it there it's so- solidarity it's a ter- sister it's a terrible film it's a terrible film that really i don't know it by its own doing yeah and i fully appreciate it it has it has a few a few moments that kind of may make it look like look there's something in there but at this point i'm just too tired and angry to scratch for it this this deep you know that's kind of where i'm gonna leave it for now how about you how t- tell me you love this oh <laughs> do you look. have a com- do you have a confession to make I no look i'm Nice. Uh, I am completely on the same page with you. Um, sort of wish I could copy your articulation because, you know, same boat. Um, I wasn't familiar with this at all. You know, I, I, I didn't know this. Like when you brought it up, oh, well, we should just complete the blatty thing. You know, and I'm not blaming. I'm not blaming <laughs> you. <laughs> this is a no-blame company. I <laughs> I hadn't even heard of it. It's like, oh, Blatty did this. This is his directorial debut. Sure, yeah, let's do it. But this is the guy. Like in my mind, when we're we're choosing Blatty, <laughs> Demonic Tober, I'm thinking like horror. But no, no, this is the guy that you know wrote Blake Edwards' fluff in the '60s. Like, but it's called the Faith Trilogy or something like this. So I'm just like, I mean, in my defense, I didn't know. I hadn't seen it either. Okay, I was just like, oh, no, this is like secondhand knowledge. This is what it gets me sometimes. You know, like sometimes you just like dive headfirst into a cesspool that's just ankle deep, and you no. don't see the bottom, and you're now like your spine's ruined. I know, and an apology. <laughs> so I don't want you to feel that I'm I'm blaming or pointing fingers. Although it was you who said let's do it. <laughs> it's like I'm not we, pointing, pointing we, fingers, but actually it's your fault because <laughs> we could have been doing the wailing for fuck's sake. <laughs> But anyway, I think like at some point I just Sorry, think I have like to be more some, mature. As someone who's completely non-spiritual, sometimes I feel like God exists and He's actually mocking me. <laughs> uh, so uh, same. Mm-hmm. The ninth configuration is absolutely not my cup of tea. Um, and I had a little note there's here. A, there's a turn in this tea as well. <laughs> I said, not my cup of tea. In fact, this may even be complete and utter garbage. (laughs) It's a nice cup of tea. Do you guys have this sort of expression in, because in England it just exists, like bin juice, you know? You've used it before. It makes total (laughs) sense. Liquid accumulating at the bottom of your garbage bin. But uh, yeah, so this is sort of that. I sort of have that feeling about it. But there are some positives and some interesting things that I can say about that. So to to turn it around, I'm interested in the fact, and I like the fact that, you know, 
Blatty has a passion for this. This is his sequel to The Exorcist in a way that he has such a thing as the Faith Trilogy, you know, and what I would include also includes discussions on mental health and good versus evil. So in that sense, you know, as a uh, as a highfalutin project, great. It's got a bit of a substance there on, on the page. But yeah, you nailed it. Um, mm-hmm. This is pretentious. And, you know, the look at me baloney Mark Kerr mode, you know, <laughs> and I'll read it again. Breathtaking cocktail of philosophy, eye-popping visuals, name one. Did you hear the ambulance pull up? Now, what he does get right, just comes in handy so because much the philosophy days. that Kermode is talking about here, yeah, it's in here, but like you said, don't care, too little, too late. But this this one he gets right, jaw-dropping pretentiousness, and that's not a good thing. <laughs> this did not tickle my ribs, humor, and my heart did not stop during any action set piece in here, because I would suggest there's no action set piece I mean, or action at all. I mean, your your heart could potentially stop. I mean, it's not gonna be like a heart, like cardiac arrest, as in like, you know, if you're like a rabbit in a house full of like German shepherds where they just start barking and all of a sudden like, <laughs> done. Yeah. It's one of those where you just like fall asleep on your sofa with your like head just tilted backwards and you just choke on your own tongue. Right, because you had a mild angina. <laughs> or just yeah and no it's just like you know you just like your heart eventually gives in because you just like block your esophagus and your or your whatever and then because you end up having like what what do you call it sleep apnea <laughs> yeah that's yeah. kind of how you it's the heart stopping <laughs> yeah Part of uh, it, when you just, <gasps> just like, nearly died in here <laughs> i just so, oh, I'm still going okay Oh, 25 yeah. minutes in are we now jesus oh my gosh here's here here's here's another note that i have 25 minutes too long i don't like the 1960s style humor uh so I, yeah i got a bunch of these notes but might as well just sort of get into it because you know my opening impressions are just a whole rant i see all this sort of complaining okay so let's start off here and just <laughs> let's try to tag this film as what it is is this a comedy is it a drama you know, is it a hangout philosophical project? What what the frig? What it is, is a mistake. <laughs> I think that's going to go. Okay. Okay. So I, maybe I should. Yeah. What is, what is this trying to be? Because, yeah, I, I think we can each come up with hmm. <laughs> negative look, labels. I think that it's trying to be... Look... This is a sophomore film. This is a film like like I could you know there are, hmm, filmmakers tend like some filmmakers tend to do this kind of stuff that they it's it's a movie that that has a lot of faces as in as in as though um not like a human has a lot of faces but like I don't know a three a, a three dimensional object would have faces like a crystal would have faces right has a lot of lot of stuff going on like you know you look at a crystal of quartz it has a lot lots going on like to describe it you have to just oh there's multiple planes of symmetry there's this and that this is the shearing angle whatever it's complicated right but i think a complicated story like this that's a 
thematically engaged, very diverse in terms of tone, requires, let's just say, some kind of confidence and acumen to pull it off. And I feel like this is, it's a mistake to do this as your first feature, right? Which means this is like, I know I'm not answering your question, but I'm going to answer it in a second because I feel like this is a movie like, you know, like Babylon by what's his face. Shazel. There you go. That's the one, you know, it's a movie that's just like kind of a love story, kind of this, kind of that. It's a big mess. But if he had made this as his first film instead of Whiplash, it would have been an unwatchable mess. You, like you don't, because you, like you have to kind of learn the ropes first. You have to just figure out where the rules are so that you know how to break them with confidence and and where they they can be broken in a way that doesn't alienate the viewer. For, which is why this movie is a mess. I don't know if it's a comedy. I, it looks, it starts like a farce. Mm-hmm. It honestly feels like a 19... Like, it feels like a Catch-22. Almost. Like, it feels like a satire. Like a, like a farcical sort of... Um, sat- it's 60s like a 60s comedy. Po- it's a 60s comedy, but it feels like, an, like, a, like a Hollywood version of a Buñuel film, in a way. Like, where just people just randomly ride bicycles. Um, Jason Miller just asks a wild boar's head for its badge. Like things of that na- nature, like you know, like there's a guy in a Superman outfit with an N-word on. <laughs> it's just, like, why? So there's these sort of weird <clears throat> ideas that don't belong. Mm. They don't have the confidence behind it to back it up. It all feels it all feels like a mess, and it's supposed to be a, a front for a conversation about philosophy, about the nature of good and evil, about the, about human nature, about um, the existence of God and stuff like that, right? Which is supposed to have a turn towards the end and, and then have a more of a, like a moralistic sort of coalescence towards the end. But I don't know what it is because it's like what it is. It's it's like it's not a comedy. It's not a farce. It's not a horror. It's not a thriller. It's not a, like, I know it's like it's, I think it's pegged as like a psychological drama, which means nothing to me. <laughs> Same, so yeah. what I think that the genre of this is a mess. Yeah. That's kind of I, my, the answer to your question. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I, I'm with you. I, and even in terms of Blatty's intentions, I think he probably sees it as a farce and maybe a theological uh, drama. I wonder myself if after the exorcist both the novel and the film are such successes something blatty wasn't before in the 60s i think he was just he was a working guy he was writing a lot of comedies and he was mm-hmm. you know he was he was a working man and he was making his career and doing a good job in hollywood great but he he wasn't considered necessarily a creative he wasn't necessarily considered you know, like a, a, a guy whose name's above the marquee. But with The Exorcist, both the book and the and the film, he was. And I think that this film, yeah, you, you can't really say what kind of film it is. I think this is just the result of Blatty being high on his own fragrance, that I'm a creative now, and my strengths, I'm going to take that sort of 
comedy that I made in this in the 60s and I'm going to revamp that because I'm the go-to guy for uh religious tension thematics and I'm going to reimagine that and th- this is what I come up with and this is going to cook because he just he believes in maybe the myth of his own greatness to a point might be reading in but I, I see maybe that's where this film goes because it's tonally all over the place um i have a question does it get the tone correct you know no it doesn't no but i think that blatty <laughs> next <laughs> next question <laughs> but i think blatty i just he's he's the creative he like and he's putting up his own money and i you know that that's great but i he doesn't have anyone to keep him in check that's what Friedkin did he kept blatty's ideas in check blatty wrote sort of a a bullshit original draft for the exorcist and freaking said you know what this draft this is too commercial so it's not interesting what was wrong with your book your book practically nailed it you like you hit you struck gold with the book go back and do that blatty doesn't have anyone to keep him in check here because it's just mm-hmm. his ideas and i think that's sort of a big uh, a big piece that uh is wrong here. He he needs a co-pilot. He needs a freaking. He needs, you know, a, a director or just like uh, an assistant director that says, "Are you sure you want this scene to run this long? Are you sure we didn't we have enough with the dogs? Are are you sure? You know, it's just someone to rein him in, whether it's a producer or an AD or something. But it's just Blatty, baby. It's his vision, and I think that's sort of the problem for me. <laughs> It's kind of like, you know, the the relationship. I, mean, it's, I know it's like in the visual terms, it's a bit different. Like, remember like when um, Christopher Nolan used to work with Wally Fister? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he just do enough movies together and he goes like, I could direct myself. Maybe I'll write it myself too. And he does this film called Transcendence. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> Which may or may not be an episode one day because it's, it's kind of like one of those pile of dog shit movies that, you know, like, We'd be the only people in the world <laughs> yeah. crazy enough to, to actually just to, to have a proper it. look at <laughs> at our own peril. But you know, <laughs> but, you know that's kind of how I see it. As in, like he's like doesn't. It's like you know, like I mean, some people kind of just have a, a, a like I don't know. Look, if Alex Garland started his directorial career with Annihilation, he wouldn't be able to kind of pull this off, right? That's kind of like too dense, too sprawling, too too much of everything. It's nuts. And I feel like that, I think you're totally right. As in like this guy doesn't necessarily know or maybe he the ego ego doesn't necessarily let him because he is smart. Like he, I can, mm. I've seen this like one interview with him when he talks about the scene with the spider walk scene they talk, in, talk about in the, the Exorcist, how they removed it because it didn't work, right? Yeah, and, and I think I saw that too. And it's a very academic discussion about it, how... You know, there's two things crescendoing at the same time and it just, it wouldn't work. And it was an well, interesting, they, I think I saw that too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, these, like, Blatty makes this sort of an interesting remark and he goes, because like, like, we removed it because um, there's a spider walk scene, then Burston reacts to it. So she shouts and like, what the hell's going on? And then someone finds out that some, that this Burke died and then she mm-hmm. reacts to it again. And then there's sort of the double climax, they call yep. it, right? And and Blatty then they go and says like goes and says he, he says well, look what it should have been was 
spider walking happens and then Burstyn doesn't have time to react because she gets the news immediately so she has to almost disregard this and react to the other one so it would be reacting to both and freaking turns around to the term and goes like yeah that would have worked why didn't we do that <laughs> yeah so you see that he knows what like he knows the craft right but i have a feeling like at some point he when he you know when you're kind of validated so much by by someone who you probably look up to then you may actually just as you say like get high on your own fragrance and say like i could do this all by myself like you're like steven seagal after a while like i could direct it myself you know or like van damme <laughs> going like i can direct a, a movie and call it the quest you know <laughs> same energy you know, like I could do this myself, and you realize, uh, actually, this is way harder than it looks. <laughs> but yeah, like when we were uh, getting ready to talk about The Exorcist, I, like I, I saw some interviews as well with Blatty and Freakin, and and that type of interaction that you just referred to, which is what makes me think that Blatty needed a co-pilot on this. Mm-hmm. F- Freakin, less so. Like you know, Freakin is just the man right but i think blatty is one of those guys who probably need a sober second thought somewhere in his circle of friends and in a circle of friends there's really just pepsico uh, <laughs> I, I feel it's more than a co-pilot that he needs i think he's like uh, i was thinking about this when we were talking about legion right i refuse to call it the exorcist 3 because i think it's supposed to be the exorcist ninth configuration and legion thematic trilogy again right <clears throat> I think this what he needs is someone who would kill his darlings for him, mm-hmm. because he's yeah. he he's a writer and he. But then again, there's the art of transcribing this into the language of, of the visual of cinema, because you know, and I think he directs as he writes, and then as a result, a lot of what he directs doesn't compel, which I think this is why it's boring. Because like mm. I said, like my biggest gripe with um, the Third Exorcist is that it like wanders. It's just a very aimless film. It doesn't have a mo- doesn't have a momentum of its own. It doesn't have a sort of like a propulsion to it. I feel this film on the on the other hand doesn't even have an engine mm-hmm. to propel it with. Like it's it, like it, it's one of those films. I mean, we talked about the Schrader Dominion, right? Where you feel like there are these Elements of dialogue that are just there because the, the the writer wants to get off on the sort of the, the themes, and you feel like you're just part like participating in this sort of very self congratulatory sort of act of mental masturbation. It's so bad, just so, it's, it's awkward. It's embarrassing to sit there, and you're just like, "What if God is like? Do you think these atoms are just? I'm just like." And then I, I hear this and just... Who gives a shit? Just, I'm <laughs> yeah. just there with this thing. Like, why do I need to care? And I just realize, of course, because there's nobody else, like you said, there's nobody around him to tell him, Bill, this scene is bad. Uh, rewrite it or remove it. Do something. But like, how you've, like, the script? Like, he needed, like, at the very send the script to Billy Friedkin so that he would tell him it's dog shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What do you think the engine is? Because I agree hundred um, percent. But what's driving it from Blatty's perspective, like his desire to make this, what's the engine for him? 
I would say, and I think he hit on it, is he, like he's just he's in love with the the thematics here. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's it because narratively there is nothing. Normally you'd expect like think about it. For me, this is like a pr- like a very poor precursor to Shutter Island. If you think about it, yeah, because there's an element of mystery. There is the sort of the twist somewhere in there. Spoiler for the ninth configuration. There is a there is a twist somewhere in there. Okay, but normally you'd expect that the character would propel you somewhere, or there you'd be informed that there's something wrong, something's not right. There will be something un, like some something unsettling about the proceedings that would kind of keep you on the edge of your seat, thinking like. Wow, why like not even necessarily just wondering they just think like why am i th- feeling like this and then when it happens you'll be like that's why and but if, if this, this happens and you're like thanks but i don't care and if it's truly a comedy or a farce this would hang itself on a plot which i would suggest is pretty thin here like nothing really happens <clears throat> like there is a twist mm-hmm. but you know, because you can have a, a a comedy based on just sort of the lamest skeleton of a plot, um, but the whole point is, you know, that you're enjoying from moment to moment, and you're 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 getting some laughs, you're getting some rib tickling humor out of the scenes every five minutes or so. Well, oh. I would say that's not in here, and I would say that ultimately, Blatty is not interested in this being a farce, even though he spends fifty minutes of doing very little other than that. Um, no, more than that. Yeah, it's not, it's not hanging its hat on any uh, forward momentum, except maybe this thematic discussion, this you know, meeting of the souls between Cutshaw and Kane. Okay, yeah. I uh, mean, look, it's... Yeah, I think that's, that's what he hangs... Because, like, he agreed... Like a 60s farce would hang itself on the plot, but I think like a Buñuel's type farce um, hangs itself on its themes, where you just, like, like nothing makes sense. All these vignettes, they don't adapt too much, like, altogether. They don't form a coherent narrative or a story that you can follow with, where there's, like, an arc or something like this. What you're supposed to get out of this is, like, the sort of conversation about, like, well... Buñuel really doesn't like the church <laughs> or, or something, right? So, or something to that effect. So I feel like there is a similar conf- conversation here, only it's so on the nose because he puts this conversation in everyone's mouths, like into not necessarily even just these little remarks. These are entire conversations and monologues about stuff that bloody gets off on. And I'm just saying like, well, this is this 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 sounds pretentious, and like I don't mind pretentious filmmakers as long as they're interesting, right? But whenever someone has to sit me down and start pre- preaching at me, I don't necessarily find it interesting as long uh, unless there is something else to compel me. But there's nothing else apart from it, apart uh, until honestly twenty minutes twenty minutes towards the end, yeah, where where some of these things translate into. Um, like action or, or character changes, drama, right? None of this happens in here. It's a lecture. Like it's a it's a very late Jean Luc Godard film where it's just a it's a nineteen sixties catch twenty two sort of Mike Nichols, not Mike Nichols, but it's it's one of those sort of 
it's like, it's like an essay almost. Yeah, for me, it felt like a bad stage play because I, I find oftentimes on stage, you get what I'll call talking scenes. It's just dialogue, dialogue between characters. So it's, I find sometimes it can be really hard for stage productions to be engaging, which is why so many of the big ones are musicals because you interrupt all the talking with some visual dance or and some and some presumably good music. Um, but this is just talking and talking and talking. And yes, like he, Blatty is putting the theology right in the character's mouth and it's boring because there's no character development with this. Everyone is fairly static, which is sort of a big problem. I really don't care for Scott Wilson as a performer. I, I can't necessarily mm-hmm. disconnect not, not him from... Not a fan uh, from Walking Dead, that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I only watched the first few seasons. Uh, I think I didn't really care for him uh, in in that. But anyway, here, this is such an obnoxious character, and I, I see, uh, I know a lot of local actors, and I know some of them. This is the type of character that they would love to play where they get to run into a room and just hop on someone's lap and be quirky and grab things off a desk and just, you know, throw files on the ground and make it rain paper and just sort of be loud and stagey type of obnoxious. I hate that because that's all it is to me. It's just a stagey type of obnoxious. It doesn't really speak to the character. It doesn't really make sense to the character. Like to me, the, the cut shot character doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense. So he was an astronaut and he was too scared to, to go up in space. I, mm-hmm. it, I, why, why? Because I, I still don't know if I have my head fully around that. They probably explained it to me in, you know, countless lines of dialogue where I was sort of, you know, nodding off and, or was too busy making a note about how annoyed I was by something <laughs> in the in the dialogue previous which probably uh, kept you awake as well. Just the idea of like, okay, I need to write a note, otherwise I'm going to fall asleep. My note, it it is sort of like that. Um, but all this theology and themes. One thing this does represent, sort of the the middle of the Exorcist <clears throat> sandwich. So it is between the Exorcist and the Exorcist Three. Um, what do you think of this thematic trilogy? This faith it's the trilogy. Ham. It's, it's the ham. It's <laughs> and the, and the exorcist sandwich. The 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 exorcist is the bread. Yep. Uh, you know. <sighs> look, as a look, I, I see this. Okay, I can see this as a spiritual successor in that. Look, and at, at underneath the primary narrative, which is an extremely extremely compelling element of the 1973 film. There is a conversation about the good, the evil, the evil evil of man, the horror of medicine, all that jazz. It's all there if you want it, mm-hmm. right? Because there, there's a story in there that you can latch onto. There's this, you know, like the drama of a little girl being sort of overcome by something, mm-hmm. which you, you may think it's like maybe it's a mental illness. No, it's not. It's Captain Howdy, Woo! you know? So if you want to, you can dig into it and find something cool in there. I suppose the same could be said about the third one, although to a lesser extent, because I said like the primary narrative kind of wanders because I think Blatty is mostly interested in like he his head is in the in the um the cell with Brad Dourif changing into Jason yeah, I, I think Good that's versus kind of what evil. It is. Yeah. Yeah. 
in here, all you have is this conversation. And what makes it difficult for me is that this conversation is being had by someone who not who doesn't necessarily have, like, like it doesn't kind of strike me like as someone who has the body of experience to back it up. You know, like it's you know like if as a like storyteller ha- or just on the topic itself. Like if you want to have a conversation about I don't know good and evil and like this kind of conversation like a moral conversation about the good and evil like you know just have something to back it up as in like have a like live live a life first (laughs) and just i know at this point he was what like 50 (laughs) yes so so, but it kind of feels like these are concepts that um are so um abstract that like if like they feel they feel disconnected. Like I sometimes feel like I'm being preached at by a teenager. Like they're with mm. these pop psychology remarks of like, what if we're just these soft like he talks about the soft okay, well he doesn't even talk about like theology. Maybe this is this is his forte, but like he tries to kind of just marry the sort of like the science into it. And I feel like his understanding of what the sort of how he how, how he can bring the like the atoms, whatever. He like I can hear from a mile away that he has no idea what he's talking about. He this, he picked up these sort of nuggets of uh, these factoids from like Scientific American or from mm. a conversation in some kind of a mass medium. So he didn't have the time of day to actually delve into it. Or maybe if he had, he didn't have the time or energy or the acumen to actually understand it and internalize it and turn it into something authentic. Because I feel like this is a pop psychology conversation. And which kind of translates into like the staginess as well, because it translates into like his directorial acumen, right? Um, because he's he has these like twenty people on 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 the set that he has to give them something to do, and he doesn't know that he he can give them nothing to do. Like he can just you know like sit in the corner or just you, you know you don't even have to be here. Like that's why I'm saying like look. For your first film, Bill Blatty should have picked something more local, more like something simpler, mm-hmm. where you don't have to have scenes where like seven people are in the room, two people are talking, someone else is gesticulating, because start small, you know, with a with a two shot of two people having a coffee. Show me that. That's kind of so, and then this this whole lack of confidence informs this of the theology of it. This is me ranting back back into the theme of spiritual successor to the exorcist because i feel like look it's trying to have the same conversation but it looks like it's a way less mature conversation about similar topics which is bizarre because it comes almost like a decade not decade like well, six years after no seven years after yeah seven yeah weird um it is i honestly in in some ways i so, oh, I should ask: Did you get through the how's the how's the uh, Exorcist novel going? Oh, I'm like now, halfway halfway through. <laughs> I, I even more so want to to visit it to see sort of you know just get a, get a sense of him as a writer. Um, my belief is that the Exorcist is brilliant be, because of Freakin, and he has an understanding on what the cinema is going to look like, how it's going to connect with audiences, and just how to trim out the fat. And I, I feel that 
going back to what I mentioned earlier, like Blatty probably now believes in himself a great deal just because for most of the seventies, people are telling him what a genius he is, especially in this new genre of horror. And he's an Oscar winner. Um, and he also did produce, uh, the exorcist too. So like he's, he's, he's a creator. He's, he's the man. Um, so I, I think that maybe he just doesn't know how, well, you said it, he doesn't know how to kill his darlings and Mm -hmm. he really doesn't know how to manage this material, but this is what interests him. And he just naturally goes back to some comedy writing. I, I find the whole business of them being in a, a mental hospital or whatever this facility is sort of bizarre and just, you know, tonally it's, it's out of whack. Like why are these people there? Well, apparently they had trouble, uh, re, uh, reentering civilian life after, uh, Vietnam, I, I believe. Right. That's, that's the conceit. I suppose if this was, if this had been communicated, not necessarily clearer, but more interestingly, that you could possi- possibly just imagine, okay, well, is this the conversation I'm trying to have with the filmmaker, right? Is this, okay, these people have been, like, this is the conversation about the the nature of man, right? The evil, you know, like, because we send young boys to war, they come back broken men and then we sequester them from society because they don't know what to do with themselves, right? So that's the con- that's part of the conversation that you could just leave completely unspoken. You don't have to have like Jason Miller who looks like Patrick Dempsey, by the way, like Mac Dreamy yeah. sometimes. <laughs> um, for, you know, like, just going on these long exposés, like you don't have to have, like there's a, there's this, there's this, conversation about like almost like a Hitchcockian sort of conversation from Psycho when just people they they explain on like what happens mm. right with with Kane right yeah like, this is what, like I don't need this to be told but right. I tell and, you this and it's what's happened prior to this hasn't created the scenario where I'm interested in it like that that's what Psycho does <laughs> you know it creates this environment that what the hell did I just see so then you get this this exposition sort of after the fact. Um, here, I, I don't know. I, I agree. I don't know why we're getting that that explanation. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think there's a comment, any type of intentional comment in here about mental health? Because mental health is also something I would suggest is part of the conversation throughout this trilogy in a way is as much as religion is. You know, like when you talk about The Exorcist um, is is Regan's suffering from some, is this a, a mental health episode? And they do all these tests. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's uh, this unhinged uh, psychotic mental health behavior in, in the, the third exorcist as well. Uh, and here, you know, all of these, all of these veterans are struggling to reenter society. So is there some type, type of conversation that he's having here? Or is this just a convenience, the mental health background? Is it a convenience for all three of the the films, um, I think yeah, I think there is a there is a conversation. I think the conversation, like if you lay it out conceptually, is kind of interesting. As in, I think the main sort of topic is, I think it's, it's Stacy Keach kind of says it. Something like does, or maybe Scott Wilson does. Does madness come from evil, or evil come from madness, right? Mm-hmm. Or and then by virtue of that, so if evil comes from madness 
therefore can people be inherently good because if they can if if evil doesn't just naturally occur in the universe is a it, it's kind of like a um abnormal state of being then that means well we are inherently good i think that's kind of the uh, the conversation this movie is trying to have yeah that's kane's perspective right yeah so yeah. he's trying to kind of show show to him that someone who did despicable things can be good because you can do despicable things or you can do things that are inexcusable uh, for good reasons, which makes you good, which then comes back into a conversation, which is, let's just say, a little bit more political because all these people are in there because they come back from Vietnam. So you can say, like, look, you can have atrocities or you can have great violence and um, suffering that's for a good cause. Right or of some description, like you can explain it away, which again, for some reason, in today's in in today's political climate, kind of feels weirdly appropriate in terms of mm. a conversation. Right, like do you ha- can you explain suffering because um, it's in because it, it's to to do some good elsewhere, and if so, does it make you does it make you morally good or not i think that's the conversation it's trying to have but then again i only start having a clue about how uh, this conversation being this sort of layered and complex when i'm already tired of a shit yeah (laughs) that's kind of the problem yeah um okay so i i want to get to that just one more thing before we get to the last half hour because basically like i i'm with you we start to see something that matters. There's a few things that start to happen in the, in the final act. Um, but is there any of the Tom Fullery that stands out as funny? Is any of this comedy working? Like I'll say, I can't think of an instance that works, but there might be a charm to a, a, a couple of things. It's not a surprise to me that the Saturday night live boys are sort of becoming a thing around this time because I think comedy has died and needed the defibrillators to bring it back to life. And I think that maybe this might be an example of the sixties type of comedy that has died. Cause there's not too much comedy when you think of it in the, in the seventies, you know, Woody no, Allen's no. doing his thing and Mel, Mel Brooks, not too much outside of those guys, at least in the Hollywood setting. So, and I wonder if, we're getting sort of a glimpse of it here because this is what comedy turned into like straight up comedy. This is the type of tomfoolery that, that we get on mm-hmm. stage, you know, and, and in the late sixties, we'll say. Some, some elements kind of stand out to me. Um, but there, again, the comedy in here is kind of, um, like I don't, I don't want to say it doesn't draw attention to itself because it does, but then again, it's flanked from all sides by, other business so it's difficult to even fish it out because he just moves on to other things so there are these little sketches where i think um kane is giving a i can't remember who i think it's called wilson a rorschach test yeah and then he says like uh, was it kafka speaking to a bed bug and he goes correct that's yeah. that's the joke right yes there's no exactly. such thing as a correct answer in a rorschach right. test right <laughs> so there are these little moments where you just think to yourself oh that's kind of interesting right or um, I suppose it's supposed to be funny when like Jason Miller's and admits 
to staging Shakespeare plays for dogs because it's supposed to be ridiculous, right? So I think there are these moments that are kind of just on their own, kind of like that's weird and funny. But then again, he elaborates them into some, into bigger scenes, and that when the whenever like it's a bigger scene, it's just more people talking yeah. about this stuff instead uh, of yeah. doing hundred percent. Like th- there's not he he's not nailing down. Now I don't know. Maybe something like this could be molded into something. He's not doing it as a director, like molding the scene for comedy. And I think that he might have these ideas like dogs in Shakespeare. That's hilarious. I don't know. Maybe you can come up with some sort of explanation or a joke or something. And then the punchline somehow is, you know, dogs doing Shakespeare. But he belabors this joke forever and he keeps going back to it. And then you've you've got this uh, other business with uh, one of the... One of the patients is a has a multiple personalities, mm-hmm. dissociative disorder. So he's always running around doing weird things. He keeps going back to these things, which never had a strong initial punchline to begin with. Um, but the, just the whole setting, the fact that everyone's sort of acting weird and quirky, it's it's almost a Hogan's Heroes type of thing that we're in this very serious situation. There's serious, maybe political tones or, um, you know, medical, uh, medical seriousness going on around here, but everything is mash and Hogan's heroes. It's just that we're, and I don't know, it's it's as if he watched too much of those and it's just, it's just not, not working. And, and he just keeps belaboring it. And, and, and again, maybe it's, it's too busy because when you're trying to sell the, the Rorschach tests, what you you've got a bunch of things going on in the background, not in a funny way, like um, the Zucker films, not like mm-hmm. Naked Gun or something. It's just there's other characters, almost as if they're they're waiting to come on stage and then do their bit. It just it just seems like such a a clunky staged uh, affair and a lot of long shots too. So I'm waiting for people to sort of basically come on from stage left and then do their bit and then go off. And it's just a lot of really clunkiness. Um, probably the one moment which sort of stands out to me, it's a long shot and it's a, it, it, the camera's still, so it's on a tripod and everything happens sort of in front of this door. And then suddenly there's, is it cut shots on, in a rocket pack and sort of flies across the screen? Yep. <sighs> Something like that could work. It's it sort of has a bit of a flair. I, I did like the medics going across from stage right to stage left. That was sort of amusing, especially one of them with was the multiple personality guy, I think, in a beard and wearing the nurse costume. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of flavor to that, but it doesn't really work, or anything that does work doesn't last very long. So mm-hmm. anyway, yeah. I, I just wanted to throw the comedy out there before we get into the ending. But but I totally agree that there's a especially when you try to tie this into like remember this this farcical uh, sketch comedy a protoplast to like airplane and top secret and whatever right which is a very busy sort of fr- like you know fresco of these like there's lots of stuff happening in the foreground in the background ev- elsewhere in next like, stage left stage right it's everywhere right that's kind of the the allure of a Zucker Zucker Abrahams mm-hmm. film right but at the same time like Buñuel would probably make okay. Zucker, Zucker, Abrahams—they just have fun with skits. All this needs to be is just funny. It doesn't add up to anything else, right? It doesn't have a like you don't have a conversation about airplane on the way home, right? 
was just I wonder what it what it meant. Like no one ever did this, right? But but you but the there's I don't know, like uh, this uh, uh, discrete charm of the bourgeoisie, for instance. It's a similar concept, as in a lot of stuff happening, multiple vignettes, but at the end of the day, you start having a conversation about you know maybe the Catholic Church is a terrible institution. You don't know, you know. Because all these sort of th- things just add up. These these con- these these motifs are kind of there. And here he kind of tries to have the Zucker Zucker Abraham skits, and in and he doesn't make the thematic conversation part of these, where you can just fish them out somehow. They're not smart enough, so he has these conversations kind of separately elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. This is where the tunnel jarring comes from from for me as well. So it's yeah. kind of like this comedy is not in service of these themes. It's kind of just almost like a like a filler, and I don't like this filler because after after a while it's kind of boring. Like I'm right. just like I've, yeah, I've, because I think it's born. I think it's born out of Blatty's two backgrounds. You know, he mm-hmm. was he had 15 years of his life where he was doing comedy and writing comedy, so he feels that's an asset. And then now he's got you know five six years of doing demonic horror. And, you know, that with religious overtones and, and he likes the thematics there. So, it, you know, it just, it doesn't gel and one doesn't work for the other or vice versa. Totally agree. Doesn't okay. Jello. <laughs> so you, you did mention, and I do agree with this, that the last half hour or so, um, stuff at least starts to happen. So what do you, what do you make of the ending? Um, and I think just oh, to- the ending or. Well, the and just the, the scene the in the bar leading up to it. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, no, 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 not not the denouement, not the not the last five ten minutes. Um, the last the, ten minutes, I'm just like, can we please? Can I please the, go home now? The, can the I business this off now, please. Can let me switch this off. Yeah. So leading up to that, in our inner climax, where there is, I would say, there's an attempt to show us the evil in men because um, Kutcha he just leaves and goes to get drunk at the bar and then Kane goes ultimately goes to get him because he's in trouble because the biker gang is is picking on him. Yeah, so again. Here's the thematics of yes. this discussion of good and evil maybe coming down into a, a real life situation where stuff is happening. They're not just pontificating and throwing mm-hmm. pretentious uh, dialogues and asides back and forth. Yeah, exactly. Like this is one moment where they put their money where their mouths are. Yeah. Because uh, I think I suppose the big spoiler of the film is that you know like Colonel Kane is not who he says he is because he comes into this sort of um, hospital to take charge of uh, of of these patients, right? Mm-hmm. But he's really a patient, and the guy. Um, working with him is is the doctor, right? And it, and he also turns out it's his brother, right? Yeah. So and then you know Kane is is a guy who killed some people in Vietnam, and he's just he, he just can't internalize it. Um, right? I so didn't. He's now I didn't him catch internalizing him. I didn't catch this, but I did come across somewhere where the the comment was that Kane himself is a split personality. So he's just suffering from disassociation. 
Um, I didn't get the split personality. I thought, like, maybe, but then again, this I is can me. see it after the fact, but yeah. I didn't either. Like, I didn't get this. The, un- the what I understood was that he's because there's a scene where um, some guy turns up and says, "Killer Kane." Because then Kane talks about his his brother who killed forty people in Vietnam. He just went on a rampage and just like murdered a bunch of people, right? And mm-hmm. then realized that the person who bur- murdered a bunch of people is him. But then again, you don't know whether he actually murdered a bunch of people because all you see is that he he admits to having decapitated a kid in Vietnam, right? Um, because someone recognizes him, and then you get the, so the the psycho esque sort of explanation. So I think that instead of these explanations, I suppose the idea of Stacy Keach coming into the bar and then doing whatever it took not to snap uh, because he's being taunted by these evil bikers uh, and then he snaps and he kills them all he goes on a rampage and he kills them all women women men no no exceptions right everyone yeah um, everyone he kills and this is the conversation kind of in like and like un- unfolding in practice you don't have to have these people talk about this because you see them enact this so i think at least in these few moments bloody tr- like it looks like he trusts me to get it but then again i realize that he doesn't because immediately thereafter there are these conversations where stacy keeps mumbling to himself wrapped in a blanket oh it's william shatner dialogue <sighs> yeah where and then if, he you know what delivers I, I, every line like this I I didn't get Shatner. What I got was like, is he trying to be Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now? <laughs> like the horror, the horror, the horror is just like I'm still here. And it's 105 minutes in, and there's another 15 of of this crap going on, and I'm already and I've been done with it for an, at least 40 minutes already. Yeah. So, but yeah, that's kind of like the climax in the bar is where things really start happening, and you start thinking, okay. This this actually is adding up to something. I can feel like oh, these pieces are falling into place for a change, right? Yeah, like because it's there. Like where where does evil lie? Like evil does lie in in uh, Killer Kane, but you know there's there's some goodness in him, and you know I, I I can see it in Cutlass who doesn't believe in the goodness of people or the badness of people. Like you know, it's yeah the the conversation is in these actions. It's not in it's the like, damned conversations <laughs> exactly that because it's other than it's just pontificating of people who have never had to put their money where their mouths are right and like once once you see this enacted then you see like well is evil in innate in us is good innate in us i don't know can evil be excused if it's for good reasons i suppose violent like the movie makes a statement saying like maybe violence is uh, um is excusable in self-defense or in defense of others um because he doesn't pay a price for it, or he actually and he dishes out his own punishment because he kills himself, right? I think, or does, or was he, he has just... a knife, or maybe, oh, or maybe he, he a... got stabbed by a knife and he just didn't want to say that he, yeah. Um, I... So he That's makes a, so he sacrifices himself. Right, and this is a talking with, point. Uh, this is this is a big talking point earlier. Like Neo, name one selfless act that someone has done. And, oh, you know, you boy, we're really getting into spoilers here. Should anyone out there listening actually care? 
Um, <laughs> but, just the ninth queen figuration. Just buy it on your own. Yeah, anyway. it's your own peril. But yeah, the, the idea Jesus. here is that... Um, I was going to say Cutlass. Kutcha. Kutcha <laughs> says... There's no such thing as a, as a completely selfless act and, you know, this type of pureness and goodness of someone doing good for others. It doesn't really exist. And then the film seems to make a point out of this death, whether it's a suicide or just he dies just after the fact from his injuries in the bar fight, this being Cain. How is this a selfless act? Because because this this is this is the exclamation point, I think, on the movie is that Cain dying... If it's a suicide, how is this a selfless act? How is he doing this for um, Kutcha? If 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 his selfless act was to defend Kutcha at the bar, is is he dying from this selfless act? I this is the main this is the main talking point. I think this mm-hmm. is sort of the the crux of the goodness conversation that uh, Blatty wants to have. But I don't know if he's even selling it. I don't. I don't know if I. I buy this. I'm. I'm not sure if he's selling it because what he's selling is a lot of words as well. Because he doesn't. Um. Because he has Stacy keeps mumbling in this in the sort of the Shatner voice, as you said, right? So you don't mm-hmm. quite even know what he's talking about, even though you feel like I should probably understand what he's saying, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Um. um so what I'm thinking, like the conversation is okay. What he thought he is a selfless act. Is is it rendered not no longer selfless if you hide the fact that you that you're essentially killing yourself because you could you could have survived if you just told anyone. Sure, and that's kind of one of those where he's just like he keeps it secret that he's dying because um, then he will prove a point that he look. Here's your example: I died, therefore you know look I sacrificed myself, but he didn't have to, so he. So he did it to prove a point. So he did it for selfish reasons. He did it for his own purpose. Exactly. So that's the, I think that's the conversation. That's the one moment where you think like, okay, this, this movie actually, this, this, this aspect of it is interesting. Right. Yeah. But again, it's like, like, how much legwork do I need to do to still be able to give this film a positive review at the end right because i feel like at some point and i don't necessarily want to be helped i understand when when films are challenging but i feel like this movie is actually working to its own detriment for the most of of its duration and comes together briefly only to fall apart immediately thereafter so i feel like it almost feels like it's an act like accidentally like a broken clock is is correct twice a day you know (laughs) yeah yeah with you 100%. The, the last thing, I think, just let me go through my notes. Yeah, the last thing I think that I want to bring up is that, and you mentioned it earlier, but we didn't really get into it. Well, we mentioned it in passing, but there's a twist here or there's a ruse that the narrative has all the way through because um, I think it's the actor Ed Flanders. He plays Dr. Fell and he's actually in charge, but he pretends to be second in command when... Uh, Colonel Kane shows up because Kane is supposedly in command and the ruse is, no, he's just a patient going through his own stuff. And in fact, Fell is in charge the whole time. Yes. And there is a a, a neat little moment where I'm I'm watching this and I'm thinking to myself, what am I watching? Why is this happening? And um, every once in a while, Fell will question Kane and say something. Well, do you remember your brother? Do you remember this or that? 
And there's one moment where Kane says, no, I don't remember my brother at all. And then anyway, fell just sort of leaves and he's crying outside the door or, and he's like, what, what is this about? Cause he's his brother. Cause he's his brother. We find out after. So this is, I think if I cared more, if this were, if this narrative were handled a little differently, this could have been a moment that worked much better. Might've been a, mm-hmm. almost a Shyamalan type of clue that's, that's dropped. And one of those things right in front of your face. But for me, this sort of falls on dead ears because I'm not sort of sucked in in the proper way. Um, everything's too busy outside uh, around it. Yes. And, you know, where am I supposed to look at any given time? Am I supposed to be enjoying this, you know, the farcical elements? Am I supposed to be looking over here? So much of it's in wide shot too. It's really hard to sort of focus in on something singularly, except these, these conversations, which are more traditional two shots. I'm, I'm going to say, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of stuff just, you know, just, one master shot for the scene it seems and you know just do do a couple master shots from a couple different sides of the room and then that's the that's the coverage it it just it almost seems to the the coverage blatty going about his work capturing what he needs to capture is sort of amateurish and working against him like he doesn't know i mean maybe this is him Picking up from Friedkin, I suppose, because like Friedkin will probably just put a camera in there and just makes it look like it's just very natural, even though he just naturally knows how to do this correctly, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, Maybe. Or me, he's making a conscious choice that he's going after some kind of a realism, and then Vladdy is not going after realism because he's making a farce, but he doesn't know that you know, like you have a camera in your hand, cameras is your way to communicate these things. You don't have to, it's it's not like you're filming a play, so you don't have to sit, you know, sit the camera on the tripod in, in a sort of like a wide shot and just film everything. Yeah. And pan just ever so slightly every now and again. You can use close-ups and they very often, very, very often just refuse to use close-ups or they you can point the camera at things of interest. Right. Every now Which and even again. going to the comedy, that's, that's what the... Zucker Abrams Zucker films do when there's stuff going on in the background the compositions are so very strategic that you've got stuff in the foreground that you're paying attention to but your eye is also cagely and strategically drawn to something going on in the background that's very clear yeah absolutely and I totally agree that this is lack of confidence and experience right and to me this is why this movie shouldn't have been his first film. Like I know he probably believed in it a, a lot. And it, granted, he only did The Legion after this, and that's the only two films he re- directed, right? But he doesn't have, like, you know, like some writers can can do this, like Michael Crichton we talked Crichton about earlier in, in, in the year. Yeah. And the guy has a visual sort of knack for, to make, for making stuff interesting, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't have it. Like he, like he doesn't have an eye for a visual. And in cinema, is a visual format. I'm sorry, but you know, like it's a, it's a medium where you have to use the image to make your stories compelling and interesting. You don't have to rely on it alone. But but he clearly doesn't know that he can rely on it. So he relies on stuff that people say, and then after a while, you just feel like you're being preached to. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Nonsense. I'm out. Anything else in this? No, I'm done. I'm I'm so done. All right. Okay. 
Then let's quickly wrap up with our final assessments of this thing. Star ratings, that manner of thing. Final thoughts, Jakob, go. <sighs> final thoughts. You know, this is one and a half out of five. I'll put it that way. And then one and a half out of five is on the back of the, the, sort of the, the 10 minutes where it comes together briefly towards the end where I am allowed to have a conversation with the themes in this movie without the intermediacy of um, of someone telling me how I should feel about this or what I should think, mm-hmm. especially when what I'm being told is a bunch of cliches picked up from Scientific American. So overall, I think this still is a mess. This conversation necessarily didn't even help me recontextualize certain things because I think we're both just as clueless about this movie how, how, as we were like two hours ago. It's... Like, you know, there's no way around it. It's just a mess. Like, I'm sorry, but, you know, like, I know there are people out there who go like, oh, you know, this is a cult. Like, no, it's not. Like I'm, I'm, I'm happy it's there, but it just shows you that you know not everyone can be like Alex Garland who just like pens a script and just like knocks it out of the park, and it takes him like three movies to turn in a stinker. Men, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yep, <laughs> like something to that effect. Like he's, like I, I know man's reach should exceed his grasp and whatever, but Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's where I'm gonna leave it. Not an uncut gem. To you know, watch at your own risk. It's one is one of those. Uh yeah, very similar. Also one and a half stars for me is this uncut gem. No, this is a film that there are pretentious people out there. There are people who love talking the talk and believing they're so smart. Uh but they're not typically storytellers like this here is an evening with drunk philosophy students. What if God, it was in our atoms, you know, it's, it's this, it's just this level. Yes. Of, that's where the philosophy Dor- is with dorm room me. philosophy. Dorm room philosophy. Oh, <laughs> anyway. Okay, yeah. You continue. It, yeah. So the, the comedy piece it, it doesn't work. There might be a couple moments that might make me smile here and there. But Blatty as a filmmaker doesn't have a knack for bringing this to film the way that maybe he wrote it for the Pink Panther movies. Um, <laughs> I, I think that there's an, an, an immaturity maybe in the filmmaking itself. I have come over this month to <laughs> don't do it, uh, but I've, I've come over this month. I don't to, have it on the to, board <laughs> <laughs> to to really like Blatty just you know, as, as a guy and, you know, he just seems like a good, a good fella. And I'm glad he made this and I'm, I'm glad this meant something to him, but I think it's sort of a fail in a number of areas. It's a very inexperienced, the, the inexperience I think is evident. Um, and it, it feels like a bad stage play. Ones the people, where people who made this piece of shit are in this room. Yeah. <laughs> It's just, it feels like a play where people talk and talk and yep. talk and talk. And that's a big turnoff for Do you me. think he sent his, sent his script to Friedkin and then all he got in return was I this? I don't give a flying fuck <laughs> into a rolling donut. <laughs> what I'd be very, very interested in, in knowing is what his original screenplay based on his 1966 book, um, 
so the screenplay he penned based on that, that Hollywood didn't want to touch, he sent that to Friedkin um, just right before, was it in the band played on? What was that? What was the, I forget the Friedkin film, but anyway, Friedkin sort of liked it in the sixties. So now we've got probably a more mature filmmaker in the seventies after a couple of these uh, the hits. The night and, they raided Minsky's. Right. So it was around that time when he made that, and that was what, 67 or something? 68. So yeah, there you have it. That That's the Friedkin that, that saw the Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane script and thought it was thought it was okay. Or or he saw the script and he said, like, if I agree to do this, then there's gonna be some revisions. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> right. <laughs> totally. I, but I'd be I'd be curious to know how different that that first version was, you know, just for just for kicks. I'm not really gonna look it up. Uh because yeah, I sort of want to end my relationship with the ninth configuration. So having said that, let's go to our tops. All right. Okay. I'm going to just whip up my notes. Um, so I've got a few things I've got. So little things I've got. Kacho asking a stuffed boar his badge number. Like <laughs> uh, the, the joke. Uh, as, as, Joke-wise as well. Kafka talking to a bed bug. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also just Jason Miller adapting Shakespeare plays for dogs. Just And, and he says, a two white fang. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I like that, but then you kind of have to say like there are two mo- two moments really that stand out for me. Um, also, have a note saying is Kane an exorcist? No, he's not. But anyway, like this is me just making my own sort of stupid notes for myself. But anyway, um, the the bar scene, uh, just as a concept where they taunt him so much is is great, and then the visual of Stacey Kitch holding a boy's head during his dream sequence. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where my tops are. How about you? Okay, so for me, yeah, there's a, there's a few. Um, it's it's weird because some of my top list actually are, <laughs> reflect my bottoms, and some of my uh, bottom list reflects my tops. But anyway, um, the business with the dogs doing Shakespeare overkill. It becomes not funny, and the but there's this line: <laughs> if I cast a great Dane in Hamlet. Am I typecasting? <laughs> so, you know, there's there's the occasional smile in there. I got to give it credit. Um, also, like you, just I just have the bar scene. So, yeah, like largely as a concept because something's happening. Mm-hmm. Something's happening that appears to be connected to the central drive, such as it is to this film. But if you slow down, like it, it becomes ridiculous. This guy looks like Kurt Russell from Wish. Oh. Um, he has loads of guy liner on. Like, yeah, what yeah. is going on? Like I say, some of my tops are, are actually reflected in my bottoms and some of my bottoms are reflected in my <laughs> tops. But anyway, um, and my number one, not that there's really... Oh, no, I have a couple others, actually. I, I did sort of like the opening, the San Antone, that song playing. And I, uh, I sort of like the rocket backpack shot, even though it's stupid and I can't defend it to any degree and that the medics just go from stage right to stage left to to get them. So anyway, that's my list of tops. That's kind of like a Buñuel sort of thing. But okay, so my my bottoms. Yep. Uh, guy scratching during Jason Miller's Hamlet speech this entire <laughs> time. This guy is so, like, supposed to be making notes, but you can look at him and he's not making any notes. So it's just fully ADR. Stupid. Um... The guy in the Superman outfit with an N letter on it. Black guy. 
as uh, well. Yeah, like, I know. Why? Moses it's... Gun. Greg Moses Gun. Yeah. So, uh, I've got also a pilot with a reverb a bit too on the nose. Um, and also, because, yeah, when he speaks and all of a sudden like, he has this echo, I just, Jesus. Um, hmm. I've got the guy liner guy goes like, say, Marines suck. I'm just like, this is, like, uh, this is such a, like, like a written sort of like someone locked himself in the broom closet thinking that this is what bikers would talk about. Like, like have you ever spoken to one? This is what second graders might happen to talk about. In yeah. A bad, in a bad film. <laughs> like, like this, this is what happens when you have someone who just imagines stuff. Right. And just like, this is what, like, like, you know, imagine like if, if I never had, if I had never spoken to a woman and tried to write a piece of dialogue between two women, this is what it would sound like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, how these people talk to, to each other. And then like the worst is my note says the movie takes forever to wrap up when it finally freezes. It's honestly amazing. Like, cause it freezes towards the end when he just like turns over this medal and you go, <laughs> I'm, I'm just like, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> we're done we're done here uh, you know but then there's i want to say like a 10 10 minute sequence where he's just like herschel visits the castle again and then he goes into a room and then he visits another room and then another room and then guess what another room and he sits down he reads a letter and this letter is just just five words on a massive piece of paper and he leaves yeah <sighs> Yeah, no, it was painful. So bad. This is just, yeah, know your audience. This should have wrapped minutes ago. Yeah, agreed. Now people love my stuff. Like, I, I'm not I'm not cutting anything. Like, someone tells him, like, you need to edit this out, Bill. And he goes, like, no, this is amazing. Leave yeah. me alone. I love long-form podcasting. Stop telling me how to do this. <laughs> PepsiCo got what they want, so I get what I want. And that's Final Cut Total Creative Control. Watch me. Where did Pepsi go? Pepsi can't somewhere in the film. So I never paid attention. Pardon? Uh, No, uh, because Blatty did not want to have any product placements. So there there is a Pepsi machine in one moment. All right, okay. No, there was some sort of political reason for PepsiCo's big thing was um, they wanted... In fact, they insisted their their one point in the the deal with Blatty to be equal partners was they had to shoot mm. certain percentage of it in um, in Hungary. Why mm. I don't know. Like I, I wonder if there was something that maybe this is me speculating. Maybe Pets, PepsiCo had sort of bailed on a bottling plant or something, so they maybe had to give back so much to the community, or I don't know. But yeah, it it was they had to shoot. In Hungary. <laughs> wow, interesting. Yeah, or is this yeah. like a tax evasion thing? Could be. I don't know, but it's it's on the business side of things somehow. So again, like I'm just speculating why why that would be not. it. And this is probably where they found the castle, right? Because I don't think this castle exists in America. No, the castle's in Germany. In Germany. And then they shot. I think they shot maybe some stuff on the roads, a few scenes on roads that might've been in Austria or something, but all interiors were shot in, uh, Mm -hmm. in Hungary. Okay. So for my bottoms, uh, 
many to pick from, but I'm going to go. So the, the biker with the eyeliner. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not just the eyeliner. It's the, the things, thing. the way that he bullies, like the flower, same marine sack. Like it's just uh, brutal. But the also the most bizarre is that once Kane is knocked on the ground, this beach ball. Oh, you're playing with my beach ball. Also weird and terrible. Um, but when they Kane to is re- lying, Kane's they, they try- Richard oh, Lynch, the other guy, the number two oh, guy, tries to geez, to ra- rape Cutshaw. Tries to rape Cutshaw. Yeah. I mean, like this is like, by the way, like, irresponsible behavior. Like, you, like if you want to have your stuff bitten off, be my guest. Yeah, that. <laughs> Unless they just, you know, like, you know, just I'm gonna slap him <laughs> <laughs> on the face with it just a little bit, just to humil. I suppose to humiliate who? Humiliate to it's humiliate like, and murder her. Murder. <laughs> <laughs> oh Christ! No, yeah. I'm just like, what, what is he trying to achieve? I'm just like, it looks scary. I'm just like, oh, oh, this is gross. And you think, oh, this is where things get serious. But then you realize this logically makes no sense. Not like, a lot. What is he? What is he gonna just, just, just <laughs> tap, tap, tap him on the cheek with his penis? I'm just. Because if he puts it in his mouth, like if he did this to me, I would probably just like, just bite down on it real hard. I'm just like, see, that's why you don't do it. <laughs> Stupid. So anyway, in addition to this, in addition to this weird aside, the <laughs> big moment with the biker with the eyeliner, Kane is lying on the ground, having been told to lick the floor and the biker to get down on the same level as Kane, who's sprawled on the floor, just slides into the splits. <laughs> like, it does. Like no one I've ever seen, you know, outside of, you know, Facebook reels of gymnasts. He, does, <laughs> you know, he also the weirdest thing. He also like when he doesn't feel when uh, Kane just grabs his hand and squeezes him. Uh, I sp- just, yeah. Because it just takes forever. It's just like, you should have felt his hand. And just goes like, bah! And then also, this is, this is where the Howie Long scream shows up as well. Oh, thank you for remembering. I had that note and I forgot all about it. The Howie scream. First Howie appearance. Screaming. First appearance is here. That's it. Yeah, perfect. Might as well, might as well find it quickly. Hold might on. as well find that and uh, and yeah, drop it in. Uh, number two, Robert Loggia in blackface. Not funny. Yep. Weird. No. Not add. Doesn't add to anything. It's not part of a skit that goes anywhere. Brutal. Um, And number one, not necessarily this moment, but it's emblematic of the whole film. There's about a seven minute scene where Mm -hmm. Jason Miller is talking about Hamlet pretending to be crazy. And this goes on and on for six or seven minutes. I kid you not. And like, why am I listening to this? The value Ooh. of this conversation, maybe it's connected to, oh, well, are they just pretending and Kane is, pre- you know, Kane isn't really crazy or whatever. There's a subtext here that he's hinting at. But honestly, I think if Blatty wants to make this meaningful, he can have this Hamlet may only be pretending crazy in just two line drop. He just sort of drops this somewhere and it suits his pur- purpose. But Jason Miller is going on and on with this discussion drove Ugh. me 
baddie and it's emblematic of the types of issues in this whole film. Sorry, you wanted to add to that? I've got, no, no, I've got this. Hold on. This is the hand. There's another scream in there. He holds it for like five seconds. That's not the one. There's another one as well. In a second, hold on. Hold on. What the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck? That's exactly my thoughts. Yeah. I think this is just Hey, was that's it. Was that long one, wasn't it? Was it? Yeah, no, that last one. That's a Howie screen. It took a uh, while, but we got there. But we, okay. yeah, back to Broken Arrow, right? Like way yeah. better film. <laughs> and same with this conversation. Took a while, but we got here. The end. <laughs> so we're through with this film. Uh, it's available on physical media, DVD, Blu-ray. They're out there. There's a Shout Factory 2016 uh, sort of cleaned up edition, from what I understand. On Canada, you can in Canada you can track it down on Tubi. Um, it's streaming there. It's also on US Tubi. If you're in that, if, if if you're in that region, you can also get it on Canopy and Pluto. UK, boy, it's everywhere. It's on Shutter, BFI Player, Plex, Prime. Uh, Italy, it's it's on Raro Video, I think Plex. So it's out there. You know, if you want to take it in, just to be a bladdy completionist, go for it. I recommend finding though some sort of medium where you can watch it and maybe play it on one and a half speed at least because boy this has a lot of extra minutes in there like don't pay for it is what i'm saying that too <laughs> right so okay Jakob, where can people find you oh they can find me in my bed hoping to god i don't have to sit through another six hours worth of crap like this week but Ooh. uh Jakub Flash on Letterboxd, flashonfilm.com. Um, occasionally checking my messages on Twitter, but then other than that, detoxing from social media. So there, hmm. this, is, this is me. Cool. All right. I'm Randy. I'm on X at Randy Burroughs, Letterboxd at Bratch7, uh, my Facebook group, Island Film Geeks. Uh, once in a while, you might or find some of my old essays on clapperled.co.uk. Um, you can email us at uncutgems at, sorry, uncutgemspod at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you. Send in your thoughts. Please, if you're a Blatty fan, we invite the emails that tell us how wrong we are on this film. Um, all right. Check out our website as well, www.uncutgemspodcast.com, where you'll find all of our stuff there, main show, Patreon, um, blurbs on us. It's all there. Next week, meet us back here. We're entering a new month, which means in 2023, new month, new Soderbergh deep cut. We will be talking about the laundromat. So, good night, good night. Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say good night till it be morrow. 
Woof. 